Well, good morning, everyone. I could not be more proud of you, church. We are a church that is living on the Missio Dei, on the mission of God. And I just want to say a brief word of thanks. Thank you, Amy and Lauren, for that update. Uh, thanks to those of you who are part of our Kids Hope Mentor Program. We're doing that virtually for the fall, but we're looking forward to this next January recruiting even new mentors who want to uh, begin the training uh, and equipping process, be a part of that. also want to thank all of those who've been a part of the Westlake Shares. Uh, I got to be a part of that team this week. Did you know that in the last six months, they have delivered over 2,000 boxes to families in need in our community? And I got to deliver some of those boxes this week. And just to see the faces of those uh, receiving, uh, you have no idea the difference you were making, church. And I want to thank everyone who's been giving faithfully to our uh, the mission of our church, uh, 10% of every dollar given goes beyond the walls, beyond our community uh, to meet the needs of those around us. So thank you, church. Well done. I could not be more proud of you. If you're interested in learning how you can be a part of either Kids Hope or the Westlake Shares program, uh, all that info is on the website. Do not miss it. Go and check it out, lakeforestchurch.org. Simply click on Westlake and then on the local service opportunities. All the info is there about how you can be a part of making a difference in the community right around us, even in the midst of this COVID season. Well, uh, by now, I guess, if you're like me, our hopes for getting back to normal this fall are, well, they've kind of evaporated, haven't they? They've kind of vanished. Uh, in fact, the only thing that has any semblance of normal is that football started this weekend. But even that isn't quite normal. But I do need to pause here and say, go Niners. You know, the unexpected has come to be expected. And so what we've been asking in this season, in this series, is where can we find life in the midst of a very difficult and challenging season. You know, I've had a number of conversations with folks, especially a lot of parents uh, during this season, uh, during these six months, uh, who are all kind of asking this question. Many of them, and maybe this is you too, many of them have discovered not just a desire to get back to life as they knew it, but they discovered a deeper spiritual longing in this season. Uh, COVID-19 has been a lot of things to all of us, but one of the things that it has done is it has invited us to do some self-reflection. And maybe like these folks, maybe you have done that reflection and kind of come up wanting. Maybe you've identified a deep spiritual longing in your life that you just long for someone to meet. You know, we've been in this series and we've been considering this promise that Jesus makes in the Gospels. He says this, he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and they might have it to the fullest. So what is the secret to that life? What is the secret that Jesus knows, that Jesus wants to teach us or offer us? Where can we find this kind of life he is talking about? Well, we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah in this series, Back to Life. The book of Nehemiah is a book in the Old Testament. It tells the story of God's people living in a strange land, trying to get back to normal, trying to get back to life in Jerusalem. The book of Nehemiah represents an important part in the story of the Bible and God's relationship to his people. But maybe during this season, you've been asking, maybe you've been thinking, why, why Nehemiah? Why this book of all the books that we could look at? Why would we take five weeks to read through this ancient text that is over 2,500 years old? And the answer is simply this. When we step back and look at the story of Nehemiah, we realize that Nehemiah is the story of our deep desire for spiritual renewal. 
That's what the book of Nehemiah is all about. And that story, when we start, begins with such hope, such longing. But when we reach the end of the story, that hope seems to vanish. There's an unexpected and surprising ending to the story that has something important to teach us, to teach you and me, about what it means to get back to life. And that's the point. You see, the book is inviting us as readers to reflect on our own life and to ask Where does that spiritual renewal come from for us? So today, here's what I want to do as we wrap up this series. I want to step back and I want to actually look at the story as a whole, from beginning to end. And when we get to the end, we're going to ask, what does God want to show us through this ancient text? What is he trying to teach us through the story of Nehemiah? The book of Nehemiah really can be broken down into four parts. Uh, The first part is simply the problem. That's chapter 1 and 2. The second is the rebuilding. Nehemiah is going to uh, undergo a a courageous effort to rebuild. We reach chapter 8 through 12 and we see the renewal. And then we get to chapter 13 and holy cow, the ending is something that no one saw coming. So let's jump right in. Part 1, what I'm calling the problem. The problem When the book of Nehemiah opens, we instantly realize that there is a problem. God's people are living in exile in a foreign land as slaves. And just a few verses later in Nehemiah's prayer, we are reminded of what has happened. In his prayer, Nehemiah prays this. He says, remember the instruction, God, that you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. You see, when God's people had entered the promised land years before, Moses warned them. He said, remember, you are to be faithful to God alone. Don't start worshiping the foreign gods or bowing to idols, but stay faithful to your covenant commitment with God. But of course, of course, the Israelites do the exact thing Moses warned them not to. And the Bible actually describes it as a kind of infidelity, a kind of cheating on God. They start worshiping the Canaanite gods, the Assyrian gods, and ultimately the Babylonian gods. And even though God is endlessly patient with them, sending prophet after prophet to warn them, eventually God does what any loving parent must do at some point. He gives them over to the natural consequences of their choices. If they are going to worship the gods of Babylon, they might as well live in Babylon. They might as well become Babylonians. And that's exactly what happens. Because the truth is, the truth is that we eventually become like what we worship. So the book of Nehemiah opens with this kind of question. The, God's people are stuck in Babylon in exile, and how is God going to solve this problem? How is he going to bring spiritual renewal to his people and renew his relationship with them? Well, that brings us to part two of the story, the rebuilding. You see, Nehemiah is actually the second half of a two-part story, what Bible scholars call Ezra-Nehemiah. Most modern Bibles take these two books and, and separate them in the Bible, but in the original form, they were part of one cohesive story. And together, they tell the story of three guys. Three guys who are all after the same thing. They all think that if they can rebuild Jerusalem, 
then God will come and dwell there again, and they can renew their relationship with God. And so we see these three guys. The first is a guy named Zerubbabel, which I just think is the coolest name. If I was ever to have another kid, I might name him Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel goes and rebuilds the temple, but nothing changes. Then years later, Ezra comes and he rebuilds the community, but still nothing changes. And then we come to Nehemiah, and it's kind of like, okay, this is our last chance. This is the third strike. We hope this works. Maybe the third time is the charm. And it's right here that the book of Nehemiah begins to really pick up speed. Nehemiah gets permission from his boss, the king of Babylon, to go to Jerusalem. And he even gets permission, get this, to expense the whole trip on the king's credit card. Now, when he gets there, the first thing Nehemiah does is he takes a tour of the city he dis- and he discovers that things are in really, really bad shape. The city's infrastructure, the walls, the gates, the water system, the pools, they are in total disrepair. The people are discouraged and harassed by their neighboring enemies. And the temple, get this, the temple sits vacant. There's no worship of God. So Nehemiah comes up with a plan, a courageous plan, an ambitious plan. He gets everyone together in the ruins of the city and he announces to them, here's what we're going to do. This is from chapter 2, verse 17. He says, you see the trouble we are in. This is almost like a good blues song, right? Trouble, trouble, trouble. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. You see, Nehemiah says, hey, look, guys, look, let's get this city back together and maybe, just maybe, then things will work out for us. Maybe, just maybe, Chick-fil-A will finally open a store, we'll finally get a Walmart, and maybe, just maybe, God will move in and our disgrace will be no more. He will renew us as his people. Well, Nehemiah must have been a pretty compelling leader because The people are like, all right, dude, let's do it. We are all in. And they start rebuilding. But of course, not everyone is on board, and it is not easy. The people are divided. Nehemiah faces opposition, both internally from some of his own, as well as externally from the enemies of God's people around them to the north and the east. So much so, get this, that the construction workers actually have to work in pairs. One of them holding a shovel, the other holding a sword standing guard, and then they switch roles. And it's a reminder, it's a reminder to you and me that anytime, anytime we embark on a quest for spiritual renewal, we will always experience some resistance, both externally, but also internally in our own soul. But even though it's not easy, eventually, Nehemiah and his crews finish the job. And right here, we as the readers of this ancient story discover something staggering. You see, it is the book of Nehemiah that fulfills the promises made by the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. The promise that God would one day bring his people back and restore the city. It's fulfilled right here in Nehemiah. Look at this promise from Jeremiah 29. Maybe you've heard this before. Jeremiah writes, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, you see they had been in exile for 70 years. 
I will come to you and fulfill my good promise, here it is, to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then, then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and, you, and will bring you back from exile. Isn't that remarkable? It's in the book of Nehemiah that this prophecy is fulfilled. This was the promise that God's people had been holding on to during their time in Babylon. This is what kept them going. The reminder, the reminder that even though they had turned away from God, even though they were in exile because of their own doing, God had not turned away from them. God had not and would not give up on them. So, so get this. When we reach part three of the story, when we, the reader, come to chapter eight, we reach the climax that we have been waiting for since the very beginning, and we are ready. We think maybe this is it. Maybe this is the moment. Maybe Marty McFly will finally get back to the future. Frodo will finally be free from the ring. Bridget will finally marry Mr. Darcy, and Luke will finally blow up the Death Star for the fifth time. You see, this scene is the scene that we've all been waiting for. Maybe the promise of spiritual renewal will finally come. It's like that wedding scene from those rom-coms, you know, where everything is just perfect. And when we read through chapters 8, 9, and 10, I mean, y'all, it's quite the scene. The first thing they do is they, they start reading the Torah. They read the Bible for seven days straight. They reestablished something called the Feast of Tabernacles, where they lived in tents for a week as a way of remembering God's faithfulness to Israel in the wilderness. They confessed their sins. They vowed to renew their covenant faithfulness. They recommit themselves to following all the commands of the Torah, and they finish with a gigantic celebration. There are two choirs. It's like Dolby Stereo. They're singing on either side of you. There's food everywhere. It's like camp meeting on steroids. And as the reader, we're thinking, this could finally be it. This could be the turning point. This could be the spiritual renewal that we've all been waiting for. But sadly, it is not. And the book ends on a huge downer. We reach chapter 13, part 4, the surprise ending. And in this last chapter of the book, Nehemiah goes out again to tour the city just as he had at the very beginning. And what he discovers, what he discovers is that the rebuilding efforts have not worked. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, man, they all did their best. They put everything they had into it. The walls, the gates, the pools, the temples have all been rebuilt. But what he discovers is that the people have not changed. They are no different. He walks around the city and he discovers that they're neglecting the temple. They aren't keeping their covenant vows. They're working on the Sabbath and there is no real worship of God. It's as if they went right back to their old ways, right back to the unfaithful way that they had lived prior to the exile. And Nehemiah, y'all, Nehemiah loses his mind. Look with me at verse 25, chapter 13. He writes this. This is Nehemiah. He says, I rebuked them. I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. 
Now, I know some of y'all are thinking, where can I get my WWND bracelet? What would Nehemiah do? Because there are some people in your life right now that you would love to go and pull out their hair. But the Bible is not condoning this behavior. Nehemiah has just reached his end. He is so discouraged. He did everything he could to rebuild, to restore, to renew, and it simply was not enough. And the story ends with this line where Nehemiah says to God, he says, God, hey, please remember me. I did my best. I'm sorry it wasn't enough. Which brings us back to the question that we started with today. What in the world is this story doing in the Bible? Well, remember, the book began by raising our hope. By reminding us of God's promise that one day he would bring his people out of exile and heal their relationship with them. And in spite of all the changes that Ezra and Nehemiah tried to make, what the book is pointing out is that the same, uh, that the same need that is highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel is highlighted right here in Nehemiah. That it is not enough to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, and restore the city. What God's people need are a renewed heart. Listen to how Ezekiel describes this in his prophetic book. He writes this, and I, this is the Lord speaking, and one day I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. What prophet after prophet after prophet had said, what Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah discover is simply this. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they are ever going to be able to love and obey their God. And so, and so, the book of Nehemiah ends on quite a downer. Yes, it does. But it points us forward to this question. Who is it, who is it that can rescue us from exile and restore and renew our hearts? Indeed, who can rescue you from your spiritual exile and give you a new heart? Well, of course, the answer in the Bible, the answer that would come 500 years after Nehemiah is the person of Jesus. This, my friends, is what Jesus came to do. Through his life, his death, and his resurrection, Jesus provided a way for every exile, for you and for me, to come home to come home to God, to be given a new heart and to be given life, abundant life here on earth and eternal life after earth. Listen to how one New Testament writer describes it. He writes this. He says, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, so that, have be, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You see, my friends, this is the story of the Bible. 
We all, you and me, live in a kind of spiritual exile. We are all separated from God because of our own doing, our own turning away. And in spite of our best efforts to rebuild and to renew our life with God, we simply cannot close the gap. It is only by surrendering our lives to Jesus and receiving his grace that we can be made new, that our hearts can be made new, and that we can experience the life that Jesus came to give. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the book of Nehemiah. And my friend, that can be your story too. So how about you? How about you? You know, I've talked to so many folks in this season and they they have just said, you know, I, I am anxious to get back, but I have discovered something new in this season an ache, a longing, an emptiness, something that seems bigger than just something I can fill. And if you've never considered this claim of Jesus, that he is the one who wants to give you life, maybe you need to do that this week. Maybe you need to do that right now. See, the story of the Bible is not the story of how we, by our own behavioral management, our own effort to do better or to do good or some kind of religious observance can somehow find our way back to God. We cannot. Just like Zerubbabel, just like Ezra, just like Nehemiah, on our own power, we will never close the gap. It is only by the grace and mercy of Jesus that we can be restored, we can be given a new heart, and we can be given life abundant and life eternal. And many of you have taken that step, but you found yourself living again in exile. What if today, what if today you just said, God, would you create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me? What if today he could again restore that life to you? Or maybe you've been clinging to Jesus and you just need to be reminded today, yes, Lord, you are the one who gives me a new heart. You are the source of my life. Would you help me to trust in you again today? Or maybe you have never, never surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never asked him for that new life and new heart. And maybe you want to do that with me right now. Wherever you are at, would you join me in this prayer, asking God to renew a right spirit within us? Can we pray together? Jesus, I'm so thankful that out of your mercy and your love, you have come to rescue us from our spiritual exile that it doesn't matter about our own spiritual performance, our own religious duties, our own good behavior that we find our way back to you, but simply out of receiving the gift of your grace and mercy, the gift of this new heart that you want to give us. And so, Lord, for every person praying with me today, I'd invite them to just pray with me. God, would you create in me a new heart? Would you renew a right spirit within me? God, would you give me the life abundant and life eternal that you've promised? I make this prayer in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.